Greetings, and welcome to the Called Out Cafe podcast. I'm your host, Doug Hooley. <laughs> this is episode number two in our new series titled, Choose Your Jesus Wisely. The topic in this episode is that of false gods. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 to 5 says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I... The Lord, your God, am a jealous God. On a shelf in my office, there is a book titled The Encyclopedia of Gods. In it are listed over 2,500 false deities of the past and present from around the world. Amun from ancient Egypt, Loki from Iceland, Tin, the Etruscan sky god, and 2,497 others. Polytheism the worship or belief in multiple deities is something that nowadays we think of as happening many centuries ago in distant lands. Yet, polytheism is flourishing more than ever, and not in some far-off place, and 2,500 doesn't even come close to the number of false gods being worshipped in our 21st century Western world. 4th century Christian bishop and theologian Athanasius of Alexandria, Egypt, wrote that he thought the pagan gods of old had been done away with already by his day. He believed that this was the result of the first coming of Jesus. This is what he wrote. When did people begin to abandon the worship of idols, except since the true word of God came among human beings? Or, when have the oracles amongst the Greeks and everywhere ceased to become empty, except since the Savior revealed himself upon the earth? Or when did those called gods and heroes by the poets begin to be condemned as merely mortal humans? Except since the Lord took the spoils of death and preserved incorruptible the body which he took, raising it from the dead. Formerly, demons deceived human fancy, taking possession of springs or rivers, wood or stone, and by their tricks thus stupefied the simple. But now, after the divine manifestation of the word has taken place, their illusion has ceased. What Athanasius missed is that evil, the unseen spiritual forces of evil, and the worship of false gods didn't go anywhere. It only morphed. The great deceiver, Satan, and the demons who follow him have not been sitting around wringing their hands for the past 2,000 years. As the Roman Empire embraced Christianity, the powers of darkness went to work creating new, stealthier false gods. False gods that the new Rome-based Christian religion would embrace in place of the Roman false gods which had been rejected by the new religion of Christianity. There's a popular Christian idea concerning modern false gods. It's close to one of the dictionary definitions of God, which is an adored, admired, or influential person. To make this definition better fit the modern Christianized definition, I'd change it to an adored, admired, or influential person or thing. To apply scripture to our time, many pastors and teachers will claim that in modern America, we don't live in a polytheistic society like was in existence during the time when the books that make up the Bible were written. However, now, they argue, rather than people worshiping graven images made of wood or stone, a false god can come in the form of anything or anyone that one adores and devotes too much time, attention, or resources to. According to this modern version of what form a god can take, these modern false gods are things or people that stand in the way of worshiping, or they take the place of the one true god in some way. To some, by this definition, that would mean their shiny new pickup truck they spend a lot of time polishing is their god. To others, it might mean their boyfriend or girlfriend has become their god. If you spend more time walking your dog, 
and taking him or her to the groomer, and more money on her or his veterinary bills than you pay on tithes, this school of thought might say that your dog is your god. If you regularly stay home to watch the NFL on Sunday instead of attending a church function, you know every player's name and detail of their life, and your emotional well-being is tied to the outcome of a game, it might be said that the NFL is your god. Now, I'm not saying that any of these things that I just mentioned are good, and I understand what's meant by the way that it's used, but I reject this definition of what constitutes a god, as gods were referred to in the Bible. This is not what I'm referring to in this book as a god. This definition of what constitutes a god lacks a very important component. A god, in the mind of one who believes in the god, has a life apart from the believer. I may love money. I may work extremely hard for it and miss many church functions to do so. The pursuit of money may dominate my life. I may become obsessed with it. I may invest it in the hopes that it will grow, which may allow me to fulfill my materialistic desires. However, I never have any expectation that if I were to pray to a big stack of cash, that it would ever do anything for me apart from my own actions I take with that money. We may serve money and material goods, but they are not gods as I am referring to them. A god can, at least in the mind of the believer, act independently from the believer. They have power, can answer prayers, and grant wishes. They have personalities, they can become angry, and they can become pleased. They may expect something from the believer, like a sacrifice. A god is not like a pickup truck that I can choose to sell. The believer, again, in their mind, is subject to the god. A god is a higher power than the believer. This definition still leaves open the possibility that another human can be someone's god. We can, after all, get down on our knees and pray or ask a human judge to let us off the hook for something we've done wrong. Or a young man may make an offering to a girl in the form of a piece of jewelry and say things in worship of her in hopes that she will grant him his wish. The formal organized worship of human beings is a shameful part of human history. Worship of Roman emperors took place throughout the Roman Empire, beginning with Caesar Augustus. This was a continuation of Hellenistic worship of rulers. The pharaoh of Egypt was also thought to be a god by the population he ruled. Many other ancient civilizations have worshipped their rulers. Although worshipping humans as gods may fit the biblical definition of what a false god is, it's not specifically what I'm talking about in this series. What do I mean by a false god, then? Well, who the one true Almighty God is, is revealed to us in the Bible. He made himself known to humans in the person of his Son, Jesus. A false god, as I am defining it, starts to come into being when one chooses to reject the truth about the one true God, and instead accepts wrong ideas about him. Ideas that change his character, and nature. Ideas that create a different Jesus than the one found in the Bible. Ideas that are not only unbiblical, but are anti-biblical. Anti-biblical differs from unbiblical. Unbiblical is what something is when the Bible is silent or passive about something. It's neither for or against it. If I declare that the number of songs sang at church on Sunday mornings must never exceed three, that's an unbiblical declaration. The Bible gives no such instruction. It's silent on the topic. But three is okay. When the Bible is not only silent or passive on a subject, but speaks against something, whatever that something is, that is anti-biblical. There's no such thing as an unbiblical belief or acceptance of a false god. Because of the first commandment alone, any acceptance of a false god would always be considered 
anti-biblical. Here's an example of an anti-biblical idea. Good works or good deeds or any action someone takes may improve their standing with God or obligate God to do something. This was the anti-biblical idea that was being taught amongst the people who made up the church in Galatia, who Paul wrote to. Becoming righteous through the adherence to the Mosaic law stands in opposition against the biblical principle that the authentic child of God is justified before God by faith in Jesus alone. In his commentary on the book of Galatians, the beloved 16th century theologian and reformer Martin Luther equated the issue of the first century Galatians were having with that of worshiping false gods or idols. He wrote this, Whoever gives up the article of justification by faith does not know the true God. It is one and the same whether a person reverts to the law or to the worship of idols. When the article of justification is lost, nothing remains except error, hypocrisy, godlessness, and idolatry. Anti-biblical ideas about God come from many sources, like the lack of understanding of Scripture. Lack of understanding may be a result of blindly following traditional teachings that are off-base, or it may be the result of using a poor method of biblical interpretation. Sin is the main cause of anti-biblical ideas, acting according to what our flesh wants like our comfort and control of our own destiny, will often put our personal interest at odds with the authentic truth found in Scripture. Pastor and author Ray C. Stedman wrote of the results of flesh-based motivations in his book, Authentic Christianity. Please note that what Pastor Stedman considers to be the ultimate outcome of flesh-based motivations, another false god is created. Here's what he wrote. This, then, is the primary characteristic of the flesh. It is self-serving. It is God's life misused. It can have all the outward appearances of the life of God, loving, working, forgiving, creating, serving, but with an inward motive that's aimed always and solely at the advancement of self. It thus becomes the rival of God, another God. Embracing false, anti-biblical ideas about God is to conceive a new false God. Acting on those thoughts gives birth to it. Chipping away at God's character in nature or His sufficiency in our minds or His foundational sovereignty incrementally changes Him into our own new creation which makes us His Creator, His God. That is an ugly thought. Let's say, for example, I hear that God is contractually obligated by something that's written in the Bible to do X. If I do, Y. And X equals an anti-biblical idea. Then, if I begin to regularly and religiously do Y, expecting God to do X, I've activated my belief that this version of God is true. I'll discuss biblical or authentic belief in a later podcast, but part of belief requires an action or response to something you believe to be true. By acting on my misbelief that this God will do X for me, I've given birth to the reality of this false God in my mind. I believe in that false god. Well, I know x and y is a little overly mathematical and may be confusing, so let me replace the letters x and y with an example. If I believe that God is obligated to what has been called the law of reciprocity, give me money when I tithe to the church, and I give my money to the church because of this belief, expecting God to give me more money in return, I'm acting on a false belief that he is a God who operates according to quid pro quo. This is a God I can put to work for me. Over time, I may add more misbeliefs to the image of who I believe this God to be and act on those misbeliefs also, 
I may believe that this God isn't happy with me when I miss church. I may believe that he's dependent on me and other Christians to spread the gospel, or no one will ever be saved from damnation. I may think that it's offensive to my God to drink alcohol or dance. There are thousands of beliefs I may impose on my personal image of God. The image of this God, who I've pieced together, becomes the God I hold in my mind, who I pray to. This image of God I have created in my mind also becomes the object of my worship. It's He I have in my mind that I am singing to and praising on Sunday mornings. My sincere love for this completely inaccurate image of who I've come to believe God is may even play on my emotions and move me to tears. It's very likely that I'll mix my beliefs. Some will reflect the truth of what is in the Bible, and some will not. It should be no surprise that the great religions of today all contain elements of truth. That's how they survive. Mixing truth with falseness does not make it any less evil for me to worship the God that lives in my imagination. However, mixing in enough truth may allow me to stand next to those in a church who hold enough true biblical beliefs in common with me. I'll assume that we must both be there worshiping the same God. I'll likely never question that we may not be. A.W. Tozer wrote this, Our real idea of God may lay buried under the rubbish of conventional religious notions and may require an intelligent and vigorous search before it's finally unearthed and exposed for what it is. Only after an ordeal of painful self-probing are we likely to discover what we actually believe about God. Being a Christian with a false idea of who God is means I'll have a false idea of who Jesus is. I'll be worshiping a son of a false god who is a false messiah. This gives an entire new, expanded meaning to Jesus' warning to his disciples. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. That's found in Matthew 24, verse 5. There are millions of false Jesuses speaking to the hearts of the same number of people that follow them. They're all claiming that they're the true Jesus, and few are questioning it. What if I discover my thoughts about who God is and how he operates are indeed wrong? Let's say up until now I've been operating in good faith with the best of intentions that what the preacher says has been saying is correct and I've been living according to what has been turned out to be misbeliefs. What if after pondering and wrestling with my beliefs for a lengthy period, I finally decide who God says he is, conflicts, with who I've thought that he is, or I want him to be. If the results of my existential wrestling match nets the result of me being wrong about God, will I accept the truth about him and reject my misbelief? If not, such a purposeful rejection of the truth about God seals the evil deal. This means I am rejecting the God of truth and am knowingly and intentionally believing in and worshiping a false god. I am not worshiping in spirit and in truth. I am worshiping in my flesh and misbeliefs. Does this happen? All the time. Anyone may choose to follow deception when following the truth would cause them a major inconvenience in their life. Many will choose to continue to follow a reassuring lie rather than the inconvenient truth. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul tells the former pagans of Corinth that there is only one God, and there are no others. This is what he said. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. That's in 1 Corinthians 8, 4. But Paul soon after makes this statement when he warns that even though the gods are false, there is something evil behind them. This is what he says. 
This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 19 to 22. What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Make no mistake, the demonic forces of hell are behind many forms of false god worship. Only God knows the number of false gods being worshipped today. In his book, Galatians for You, author and pastor Timothy Keller says the following, There are an infinite number of different ways that we can choose to earn our salvation through works, even if we don't think of it as earning our salvation at all. But whatever we choose to use, whether it's achievement or morality or religion of serving our family, we turn that thing into a Savior and thus into a God. Works righteousness always creates idols. It's simply that the false saviors it produces, church attendance, ministry to others, Bible reading, are things we would not normally think of as idols. There is just not enough time in this podcast to individually address even the main false gods of Christianity. Each false god, if adequately discussed, would require an entire separate book containing the traditional teachings which have falsely supported them, and the examination of the scriptures that have been misused to support the teachings. To do away with the beloved and deeply rooted false god, each one of the scriptures need to be examined and determine their true meaning. It's only after determining the relied upon scriptures have been misused to give life to a false god that a stake can be driven through the false god's heart. Included in each one of these books that would need to be written would be how each false god's nature differs with the one true God and what the false god expects of their followers. There's also a vacuum that would be created whenever a false god is forced out of one's life that would need to be addressed in each case. In other words, based on the teaching in the Bible, what is it that one should believe in the absence of the misbeliefs they have been holding? False gods often run in packs or are combined into a complex false god. For example, although I don't consider money itself to be a false god, there is a false god who has authority or control over money. The false god who controls money seldom goes anywhere without the false god of service or the god of spreading the gospel. You might even name one false god Legion because he's made up of so many others. The false god of the church is a God that thrives on people who place their faith and trust in the Christian culture and all the many things that it involves. A culture that centers around church attendance and the social structure that accompanies attending church. All the friends, the fellowship, the feeling of belonging and being needed, the singing, performing, and receiving encouragement. All things that may be good, but they can all easily exist apart from a relationship with the one true God. Well, the following are a few examples of anti-biblical false gods that deserve their own book to be written about them. They're each based on a composite of all-too-common teachings within the modern evangelical church. How familiar you already are with these false gods will depend on your level of exposure to the teachings that support them. From your own experience, you may be able to add or take away from each of the examples that I'm going to give, but what you'll still have is a false image of who the real God is. I'm not going to make any attempt here to cite the scripture that's been misused to support these false gods. And because of time, I have not provided any arguments against them. It's my hope that by the end of this series, you will take on the work of driving your own stake through the heart of each false god, if you haven't already.
One last word before you consider the following examples of false gods. The things they are attempting to accomplish by themselves may not be bad, like giving money, spreading the gospel, or living a moral life. What is bad is when those things become the end goal or the purpose of the church or part of a religion that replaces the true gospel message that relies solely on what Jesus has done and he is doing and he's going to do. Well, first, the God of money. The God of money is not entirely sovereign and can be manipulated. If you pay him off, he'll bless you. He works on the principle of reciprocity. You must give to get. The more you give, the more you will get. If you withhold your money from him, he will withhold blessings from you. The priests of the God of money encourage his followers to be good stewards of what the God of money has given them. Being a good steward is defined as blindly trusting the priests with at least 10% of their income to spend as the priests see fit. I use the word priest here uh, to define a broad base of clergy. The God of money has a son named Jesus. His son Jesus never had a problem with coming up with money. It's said that he and his companions had so much money, they had to have an official treasurer travel with them. That was Judas. If Jesus was ever pressed for cash, he could miraculously just produce the amount he needed. If one trusts the God of money and is faithful in paying their dues to him, what we call tithes and offerings, they too, like the son of the God of money, will always be provided for. To openly show you're devoted to the God of money and not money itself, a sacrificial ceremony is conducted each Sunday. It said, you may not serve two masters, the God of money and money. So, you must demonstrate that the God of money is more important to you than money is by giving the God of money some of your money. He, in turn, will pay you back with more money. <laughs> Short testimonies are sometimes offered before the money ceremony by people who have been successful in demonstrating their allegiance to the money God in the past by giving him their money. The money God is prayed to and especially thanked during this ceremony for having provided all the money. Songs are performed while the plates or baskets or bags or buckets are passed, and money is openly given so as not to hide the good work of giving to the money God under a bushel. When Jesus said, when you give, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, he obviously did not mean when you're giving to the God of money. When the God of money sees your heart, it must look something like a dollar sign, because the priests of the money God say that a way to tell where one's heart is is by looking at one's checkbook. This makes sense because the God of money is primarily concerned with how you spend your money. So long as your finances show that you are giving at least 10% of your money back to the money God, your heart is then in the right place and you're good to go. You may have a serious problem with gluttony, substance abuse, or pornography, but all that's okay as far as the money God's concerned so long as he gets his cut of your income. The money God doesn't care if food is more important than him. He would never ask you to put in your Twinkies in the offering bucket. He doesn't care if pornography or drugs are dominating your life. He'd never ask you to surrender your favorite nasty magazines or your roach clip. For some reason, the God of money only cares that he is more important to you than money is. The priests of the money God have carefully identified those portions of the Old Testament law that apply to Christians. Those portions are primarily limited to passages that specify that one is to give 10% of their income to the church of the God of money. The rest of the Old Covenant law, such as being circumcised or eating pork, doesn't seem to matter to the God of money, only that you pay your tithe. Well, let's talk about the God of piety. The God of piety is also not entirely sovereign. 
he's not completely determined ahead of time what he's going to do. He rewards his followers and penalizes them according to their behavior. The God of piety also has a son named Jesus, who took care of a great deal of the sin problem of mankind, but left them with work to do. The priests of the God of piety tell us that once one is saved from damnation, that they've been freed from the bondage of sin. When one is free from sin, they no longer must sin. So it is possible for them to not sin if they have enough faith in the God of piety. However, since no one, save Jesus, has ever pulled this off, either the God of piety is not very powerful or no one has ever had enough faith. Heaven or hell rides on whether you're a legitimate follower of the God of piety. Continued misbehavior or sin after one says they've been saved is an indication that one's faith was never real. Regardless of what happens in secret, the outward appearance of behaving in a pious manner is the big indication of whether or not one is a true believer. Followers of the God of piety normally attempt to save unbelievers one sin at a time. It often starts with the most outward signs that demonstrate lack of belief in the God of piety, like their language. Followers of the God of piety must never utter a swear word. Next might be the way one dresses or the music they listen to. Disciples of the God of piety can be heard saying, I'm trying to be a good Christian because they never feel as though they are quite pleasing enough to be accepted by the God of piety. The God of piety expects heavy judgment to take place between and among his followers. Judgment of how one dresses, judgment of how one spends their time, and judgment of how one speaks. In some sects of the churches of the God of piety, men are judged by if they have facial hair or not when they are married, and the women are in danger of damnation if they wear makeup. One would never be caught humming a secular song in some circles. The God of piety expects regular church attendance. It's a primary litmus test of a true believer. It's the demonstration of where one's heart is at. It goes hand in hand with having faith in the first place. Go fishing if you must on Saturday or Monday. But if you miss church on Sunday because of fishing, the God of piety sees where your priorities are and will judge you accordingly. The goal set out for a follower of the God of piety is to become more and more sanctified as they go through life, that is, to become increasingly holy. One is expected to gain more and more control over one's own behavior. This is in part because of the Bible verse that says the followers of the God of piety will be conformed to the image of his Son, Jesus, who is perfect and sinless. To convince the followers that becoming sinless is their responsibility and not their God's, a few words in this following verse had to be changed. For whom God foreknew, he also predestined not to be conformed, but to conform themselves to the image of his son, Jesus. Well, that used to be Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Now it's First Fictitions 8, 29. Now, the God of the Christian Jedi, Star Wars is an epic movie franchise that began back in 1977. I remember it well. Having now grossed around $10.3 billion, Star Wars is the second highest grossing movie franchise of all time in the world. In Star Wars, there are characters who are called Jedi Knights. Jedi is both the singular and plural form of the word. Jedi rely on a belief system or a religion that's based not on faith, but utilizes a mystical energy called the Force. Like good and evil, there is a light side and a dark side of the Force. Experienced Jedi Knights may reach the level of being a recognized Jedi Master, and like clergy, they're allowed to teach others, not the ways of the faith, but the ways of the Force. May the force be with you.
is the Jedi's equivalent statement when saying goodbye to someone to may God be with you. Like a student of Christianity is called a disciple, in Star Wars movies, a student who's learning the way of the Jedi is called a Padawan or a Padawan learner. To allow the personal development of the Christian Jedi, Padawan or disciple, they're taught a method of Bible study that encourages them to reach out with their feelings <laughs> and inject themselves into every Bible story. Using this method, the Padawan learner can virtually rewrite a fully personalized Bible, interpreted not according to sound principles of interpretation, but according to their life experiences, education, socioeconomic status, and what kind of day they're having. Since Christian Jedi masters, or preachers and teachers of the Christian Jedi faith, don't have the authentic truth on their side, to effectively manipulate and keep their followers in line, they're skilled with using Christian Jedi mind tricks. More on Jedi mind tricks later, but these tricks come in many forms, including the use of fear, guilt, and vanity. These skills have been passed down since ancient times. Priests of other gods often borrow these techniques. They often rename the feelings that are produced from using these methods, calling it conviction. The God of the Christian Jedi is the ultimate master of using faith. It was through the force of faith that God spoke the world into existence. So it's by tapping into the mystical power behind this same faith that a Christian Jedi may manipulate the world around them. If the faith is strong with a Christian Jedi, there is nothing they cannot do, no mountain they cannot move. Paul was the greatest Christian Jedi master to have ever lived, second only to Jesus. Jesus did really cool Christian Jedi stuff like walk on water and raise the dead, using only the faith. The Christian Jedi is most powerful when they use their God's own words on him. It's then that they may hold their God accountable to do what he said he would do. He has no choice because he cannot lie. Speaking a, quote, word in faith, unquote, and claiming God's promises is powerful. Planting seeds of faith by giving money will reap great harvests of money. These are the ways of the Christian Jedi. What about the God of spreading the gospel? The God of spreading the gospel wants one thing, to spread the gospel so people can become saved. This God needs our help. He too has a son named Jesus who cannot return to the earth until the gospel has been spread to the entire planet. This job is in the hands of the disciples of Jesus. It's proven to be a tough task to pull off so far. Just when you think you've spread the gospel everywhere, another baby is born in the remotest part of some place like China who's never heard the gospel. Even though there's a Chinese tradition that missionaries made it to China as early as 64 AD, and there's archaeological evidence to support that there was a significant Christian community in China by the 7th and 8th centuries, between babies being born and the communists, it's just been tough to keep the gospel spread there. The same is true everywhere else. It doesn't seem to matter how many times the gospel has been spread throughout the world or the fact that it's no longer even news. The important thing is to just keep trying. Some followers of the God of spreading the gospel have done their part by placing Bibles in every hotel room across America. Others have contributed to the cause by raising money to put up satellites over the Muslim nations to broadcast the gospel. According to the Wycliffe Bible Translator Organization, even though they have a staff that's involved in at least 2,125 different active translation programs throughout the world, there are still an estimated 114 million people in the world without any access to Scripture in what's called their heart language, and at least 1.5 billion 
are still without the full Bible in their language. Well, it's unclear if verbally spreading the gospel will be enough for the God of spreading the gospel to allow his son to return, or if the gospel will need to be in writing. And if it's the latter, then that will also necessitate that the world must also have a 100% literacy rate before Jesus can return. The God of spreading the gospel is a multi-level marketing God. Once one has been made a disciple, they need to get busy and spread the gospel themselves. A disciple need not waste any time learning about anything deeper than the core salvation-related message of the gospel. They're taught the bridge diagram and four spiritual laws and sent out to build their own downline by recruiting more disciples. The work of God that this God expects of his followers is not simply to believe in the one whom he sent by knowing and understanding him, as Jesus says it was. The work is all about spreading the gospel. In fact, according to the God of spreading the gospel, the purpose of the church is not to know God and believe in the one whom he sent. It's to spread the gospel. The God of spreading the gospel isn't all-knowing. He's not quite sure who's going to be saved. The success of saving the world's population is resting on the shoulders of the disciples of Jesus. It's no wonder why some people who have been successful at bringing people to Christ are so proud of what they've done. After all, they have pleasantly surprised the God of spreading the gospel with a new convert. The true mark of an authentic believer in the God of spreading the gospel is if they are fulfilling the, quote, Great Commission, unquote, making disciples of others. Will they do their part in obeying the commission or not? Will they allow people in their neighborhood to die having never accepted Christ? If they do, that's on them. Will they one day have to explain to the God of spreading the gospel why they failed to win the soul winner's crown? Saving the world or not. What a tremendous weight the God of spreading the gospel has placed on the shoulders of the disciples of Jesus. Most false gods, like I just mentioned, come about because of wrong information concerning how God operates, which is over and above how people become saved from eternal damnation. Jesus was asked a question that's often breezed right by. The answer to that question is especially important to this topic. This is found in John chapter 6, verses 28 to 29. Then they said to him, Jesus, What shall we do that we might do the work of God? Jesus answered and told them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Jesus is the one whom God sent. Jesus and his Father, Yahweh, are one. He was and is the complete expression of the one true God in human form. The work that Jesus tells us that he, God, has for us to do is to believe in Jesus. The answer to the question could have been, heal the sick, feed the hungry, visit the imprisoned, and spread the gospel. But that is not what Jesus said. To paraphrase, Jesus said, The work God has for you to do is to believe in me. Only having the work to do of believing in Jesus sounds too good to be true. It also throws people into a panic as they think, How then will anything else get done? How will more people come to Christ? How will the poor, sick, needy, and imprisoned be taken care of? Just as Jesus is the answer to the question of salvation, He is the answer to all the rest of these questions. Jesus is the only goal, and what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do is the only way to achieve the goal. When anyone replaces Jesus as the goal, or the means to get to Him with anything, they're replacing Him with a false god. Authentic belief requires knowledge and understanding of the truth.
Jesus is the truth. To be clear, the primary work of the authentic child of God is to know, understand, and accept the one true God as He revealed Himself to be in the person of Jesus. When two or more authentic children of God get together, that work is no different. What Christian has not heard that faith without works is dead? How true that is! Faith without doing what Jesus said is the work of God isn't just faith that has become dead, it's faith that's dead on arrival. Faith, or belief, in Jesus is the work. As simple as this may sound, it turns out that the work of believing in Jesus is not that easy to do. This is because authentic children of God aren't only supposed to believe in the bare essential components of what it takes to be saved and gain eternal life, but they are to rely on who He said He is and what He says He will do. Part of this work is continuing to gain knowledge, understanding, and accept all of Jesus. Part of it is maintaining hope in the things that He said. They are to believe in the whole person of Jesus as revealed in the Bible. Seeking Him and believing in what you learn about Him is a lifelong, if not eternal, process. Believing in or trusting wrong ideas about who Jesus is is to believe in something other than Jesus. Wrong ideas about Jesus abound in the church today. How false gods are customized is discussed in a future podcast. For now, it's only important to understand that if you change who God is enough, you are creating a God other than the one found in the Bible. But isn't the Bible open to interpretation? Yes, but mostly no. <laughs> Being open to interpretation is how we get into trouble. Being open may mean to some that the Bible is open to any interpretation or that there's no right or wrong way to interpret it. That is a common postmodernist belief. The Bible is open for us to translate it into 21st century English from ancient Greek and Hebrew. Then it's open to be interpreted with the goal in mind of coming to know and understanding the original author, like Matthew, Mark, Peter, Paul, etc., and the capital A author, God's intended meaning. That's a lot of work and is only accomplished through applying sound rules of biblical interpretation. Interpreting the Bible, trying to determine what the author means, is not accomplished by reading Scripture through one's own prejudiced lenses that have been formed according to one's own worldview, their fatigue of the day, the sin they're trying to justify, and how emotionally hard one's day has been. You can decide and believe that the Bible is some sort of magic book that can have different meanings for anyone who wants to read it, if you like. But someone else might decide the big old family Bible is just something to use as a booster seat for their child to sit on at the dinner table. Neither of you would be correct. The Bible is the inspired Word of God. After it's carefully translated, it's meant to carefully be interpreted. Not literally, but in the normal, natural, customary way that language is understood taking into consideration that people have always used idioms, hyperbole, metaphors, and symbolism. Was a book in the Bible meant to be just documenting history or explain it? One needs to consider the time, culture, and place it was written. What was going on in the world then? Who was the original intended audience that it was written to, and what was their historical experiences? Was it written uniquely to them or to all that would follow them? Knowing the background and experiences of who wrote the scriptures is also very helpful. Even though there are 66 different books that make up the Bible, and it was written by at least 40 different authors over a period of 2,000 years, 
the meaning of every sentence in the Bible must fit into the context of the chapter that it's in. The meaning of every chapter must make sense and not conflict with the book it's in. The book must agree and fit in with the entire Bible. If something doesn't fit, chances are you need to continue to study. Or perhaps the translation may be an error. Over the years, I've solved many unresolved questions as I've gone back to the original language with my Greek lexicon in hand. The Bible, God's Word, is the communication interface between the finite and temporal, us, and the infinite and eternal, God. It demands our careful and thoughtful handling. In summary, false gods and idols are as real today as they were in ancient times. What constitutes a modern false god is generally thought of today by most pastors and teachers as anything that distracts us from the worship of the one true God. However, that's not how the term was used in the Bible. A false god is simply an unbiblical or anti-biblical idea of who God is. It's the God one holds in their mind that they follow, pray to, worship, and believe controls the universe, which does not match up to the God of the Bible. That might be the gods of the Hindus. It might be Allah. It can be any recognized God, or it can be a false Christian God. Many new false gods are born in the imagination. They're given life when their followers act on their beliefs. There are countless false gods that those who call themselves Christians choose to follow. Believing in, praying to, and worshiping a false god is a serious matter. It's the stuff words like heresy, sacrilege, unorthodox, and blasphemy were made for. But Yahweh, our one true God, understands very well the humans that He created, and He is a God of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. So, lest we react to the shock of such an idea, by ripping our clothes and throwing dirt on our heads in mourning, <laughs> and delivering up the heretics to be burnt upon the pyres. In the next episode, let me convey a story about how God was patient with me while he killed off one of the minor false gods in my own life, the God that hates dancing. Until then, may God bless you and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. Mm-hmm.